Good morning. Before we turn our attention to that passage in 1 Corinthians, I wanted to take the opportunity to assure you of my prayers for you as you go to mission next week. Uh, it is my hope, I've always got to read, I've read James, so I've got to put DV in front of everything. Um, that it is my hope that um, I'll be able to visit um, a couple of the mission teams next week and uh, see how you're going, but my prayers will be for you all. It's a great opportunity, isn't it? Brilliant opportunity to put into practice the things that we've been learning at college. And wherever you are, whether you're at Alice Springs or um, Lismore or Bathurst or San Susie or Blacktown and Doonside, you're going to come across men and women who need to hear the gospel. You're going to come across Christian men and women who are struggling who need to hear the gospel. You'll come across brothers and sisters who've been sharing the gospel long before you ever got there and will continue to do that after you leave. So I trust it's going to be a great time and I'm going to be praying for you. And I can't wait to hear the reports of what the Lord has been doing while you've been with them. So let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so very much for the kindness of giving us your word, even hard words of rebuke and challenge, for we need to hear them and be warned. And we pray, Father, that this morning as we hear your word, that you might shape us by it, so that we might live as people who follow the Lord Jesus and are like him in the way we treat each other. And all of this we pray for his glory and in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, some rebukes are so stinging that they're hard to ignore and hard to forget. When I was in high school, I remember bringing home a report card to my mother, which contained just such a rebuke. Generally, I should warn you, it was a good report, you know. It, was, it had, um, you know, did well, expect good things, all that sort of stuff. But in the comments of one particular teacher came the words, he shows a singular lack of responsibility. <laughs> I won't tell you what the subject was. Uh, it was confronting, but it was meant to be. And although I did drop the subject the next year, <laughs> <laughs> which might have explained the way I'd behaved in class, um, I remembered the rebuke. One of the most devastating rebukes of a church from the pen of an apostle must be the one read for us a few minutes ago from 1 Corinthians 11, must it? In saying this, I do not praise you because you do not come together for the better but for the worse. Imagine those words addressed to you or your church. Imagine the apostle Paul standing there on Sunday with the television cameras rolling all around him saying, don't bother going in there. When you guys get together, you do more harm than good. Your gatherings don't build people up, they tear people down. They're not demonstrations of the gospel, they're the very opposite. It would be devastating, wouldn't it? Not just because the words are harsh and there's no avoiding it, they are, but also because of who's saying them. Jesus commissioned ambassador, the Apostle Paul, the one who speaks to the Corinthians and to us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has had some hard things to say to the Corinthians in this letter, hasn't he? He had to challenge them about party spirit and misplaced loyalties in chapter 1, about their blind tolerance of sexual immorality in chapter 5, about their self-centred pursuit of their own interests in chapter 6, about indifference 
to the impact of their high-handed exercise of freedom in chapter 8 and about idolatry in chapter 10. Paul was not going to sweep any of that under the carpet. These things needed to be challenged and Paul doesn't mince words in doing that. And we've noticed at each point as we've gone through the letter, haven't we, that we need to hear Paul's words, that they've been preserved for us because these are our dangers too. But here are the strongest words yet. You do more harm than good. And the terrifying proof that he's right comes from how they act when they gather to share in the Lord's Supper. It's a kind of arrogant individualism, being caught up in their own experience that blinds them to what is happening around them, to their impact on the people around them, to the nature of the Lord's Supper and to the nature of the gospel to which it testifies. Before we look at that, though, let me ask you, what's your reaction when you turn up to church or to the college chapel for that matter, and there's a table up the front with a white cloth over it and you realise that we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper this week. Do you get excited? Do you quietly sigh with resignation? Do you just roll your eyes and dream of being back in your own church where you can't remember the last time they did this strange thing together? There has been more and longer-lasting controversy about the Lord's Supper than about any other aspect of Christian faith and discipleship. Some people have made too much of it, almost insisting that it is participation in this ceremonial meal that saves me or keeps me amongst the saved. Others have reacted to the other extreme, denying there is any point to doing this, doubting it's actually something we should be doing. So where do you sit on that spectrum? Well, Jane's going to come and talk to us about the Lord's Supper from her perspective. Thanks, Mark. So Mark has asked me to share my perspective about how I find the Lord's Supper helpful, um, even though I've got a Roman Catholic background. So I grew up as a Roman Catholic and went to church every week, though we didn't call it church, um, we called it Mass. Why? Because we believe the most important thing during the service was the Lord's Supper. In fact, a large group of people just came for that section of the service. They arrived late, um, they stood at the back. So imagine about 30 people standing at the back of chapel each week and they left straight after communion. As a Roman Catholic, I believed three things about the Lord's Supper. One, I was literally receiving Jesus' body and blood. Two, if I had any chance at all of being saved, it was necessary for me to keep on receiving communion. And thirdly, I only understood it in terms of my individual relationship with God. It had nothing at all to do with my relationships with others at church. So literal, necessary and individual. When God saved me, for some time I reacted against my Roman Catholic background. I had once believed I needed the Lord's Supper to be saved despite it offering me no assurance of salvation. And now, as a Christian, I had assurance of salvation. I knew I didn't need it um, to be saved. But over time, I came to understand the gift it is, that it's good for me spiritually. 
So what do I mean by that? Well, here are seven ways that I found it to be helpful for me spiritually. One, there is a spiritual communion between our Lord and us, his church, when it's celebrated. Two, the physicality of it helps me feel and understand the gravity of what Christ has done. Three, the repetition of God's love for us when you read through the Anglican communion service. Four, the reminder to take my own sin seriously. Confession is a reality check. Five, the reminder to take my relationships with other Christians seriously. I was really taken aback when I first really understood that if I had wronged other Christians, I need to sort that out before I participate in the Lord's Supper. It helps remind me of what Christ has done in order to bring peace between us and that living out that Christian unity is extremely important and it's not to be taken lightly. Six, since it's a picture of the gospel, the preaching of the word always accompanies it since I've been a Protestant. Um, this is what has been important. This wasn't the case as a Roman Catholic. We all thought the moment where the bread and wine supposedly turned into Jesus' actual body and blood was the most important. If we'd had a greater focus on the word, we'd, if we didn't separate the word and sacrament, we may have come to see that the meal was a remembrance of the reality we could have already enjoyed, that Christ's death was sufficient once and for all. Seven, as many, many people have said, with the eyes of faith, we look in a number of directions during the Lord's Supper. And I found um, this sort of picture helpful as well. So it helps you navigate the Christian walk. It helps us look back in, faith, in thankfulness to what Jesus has done. And thankfulness is a sign of a believer so it helps with that. It helps us look around to our Christian brothers and sisters. We share the Lord's Supper together as a people saved by God. It helps us look up where Christ intercedes for us now. He wants us to endure, to make it to the end. Um, and I just find that extremely encouraging. And it helps us look forward when Jesus will return and take us home to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of that marriage supper of the Lamb. So it reminds me that I'm a woman of hope, and my hope does not lie in the here and now, but rather in the life to come. Um, and this brings me great peace and contentment. Um, it helps me, as the Puritans often said, it helps me sit loosely to this world. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Jane. That was really helpful. I'm sure that that experience resonates with some of you as well. Well, for a passage that is often read when we share the Lord's Supper together, it's interesting that the supper itself is not the main focus of this section of Paul's letter. The issue is rather the way the self-centeredness Paul keeps addressing throughout this letter shows itself in this particularly terrifying way when these Christians at Corinth gather to share in the Lord's Supper. And it's so bad that Paul is willing to say, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. How can it be when it is a denial of the reality that this meal is meant to point to? 
we have been saved by the extraordinary sacrifice of Jesus, the innocent, no more than that, the only righteous man. He paid this price. His body was broken and his blood was shed. Everything that our sin deserved was born in full and exhausted by him in order to save a people for himself. Not just an individual, or even a multitude of distinct and separate individuals, but a people, the church. As Paul told the Ephesians, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. When in verse 24, Paul repeats the words of Jesus, this is my body which is for you, the you is plural. You all, not just you by yourself. You see, when they gathered and each just fended for themselves and those who had much enjoyed much and those who had little were left hungry, they did not show that they were a people gathered by the Saviour at great cost. They simply showed how divided they were. They were caught up with themselves. They couldn't see beyond themselves. They went ahead with their own meal, looking after themselves and they didn't even notice that others had nothing. They had come together. It's interesting that Paul uses that word over and over again in this passage. They had come together, but they weren't really together. Their meeting was itself a contradiction. This wasn't fellowship, it was the very opposite of fellowship. And notice how scathing Paul is. You are not eating the Lord's Supper, verse 20. You despise the church of God, verse 22. You humiliate those who have nothing, verse 22. They might not have done that deliberately. Perhaps they just didn't give it a thought. Caught up in their own little bubble. But what in effect they did was to bring the things that divided them from one another in the world into the church. Those with much enjoyed their much, oblivious to the fact that there were those with little who went without. There was such a serious concentration on themselves and their experience, even when they'd come together with others, that they did not notice that they humiliated those who had nothing. The rich had their lifestyle out in the world and the poor had theirs, and well, it was just the same in the church. We need to think hard about how that same self-centeredness might play itself out in the congregations of which we are a part and even when we come together in College Chapel. How is it possible for us to be caught up with ourselves in, in such a way that we don't notice what we're doing to others, the very people we are meant to be gathered with? How might we retain the sorts of division between people like us out in the world within our churches? Are special people given special preference, special honour? In some places it might matter what school you went to or which university. It might matter what job or jobs you've done or what suburb you grew up in or which church or fellowship of churches you belong to. It could be your accent, your capacity for argument, 
where you did your ministry apprenticeship or whether you did a ministry apprenticeship. What little divisions do we keep alive even when we pretend that it's not at all what we're doing? Paul had identified the poison that was destroying their fellowship and it's a strangely familiar one. But then he turned his attention to what the supper was really meant to be like. You see, understanding what the supper really is and what it really points to will act like a kind of intense searchlight that will show us what might otherwise be hidden from us. And that's why verse 23 begins with the word for. So consider what the Lord's Supper is. A meal patterned on the meal that Jesus had with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. It's an echo of his explanation of what was about to happen that night and the next day. The Passover, reinterpreted to point to a greater deliverance than the deliverance from Egypt in the time of Moses. The new covenant promised by Jeremiah, now fulfilled and sealed with his blood. My body, Jesus said, which is for you. The new covenant in my blood. Consider what it is that they were sharing when they were sharing the Lord's Supper. Do this, Jesus said twice, after breaking the bread, bread and distributing it and after handing them the cup. Do this in remembrance of me. And as you do, Paul adds, you will be proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. These words in 1 Corinthians, written perhaps within 20 years of Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension, are the first and best piece of evidence that Jesus' earliest disciples took his words that night very seriously indeed. Within 20 years, while the the apostles were still alive and could close it down if it was wrong, within 20 years, with some regularity, Jesus' disciples were gathering to remember, not just in some general sense that Jesus had humbled himself to die for them, but to remember exactly what he said and what he did on the night he was arrested. The context in which he placed his death. The exhortation he gave to them that night. There's too much detail here for us to conclude anything but that a symbolic meal or part of a meal, after all, you've got your own houses to eat and drink in, that such a meal was being celebrated by Christians even in the time of the apostles. And notice there's no mention of special clothes or special bread or special ceremonial actions or a special person who presides over it all because none of this matters. Take all of those things away and it will not invalidate what's being done. In fact, we've already seen the only thing that invalidates what is being done namely how you treat those with whom we share it. Have all the other things in place and fail to be concerned with those with whom you've come together and it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. The Lord's Supper is a tangible reminder for people who are tangible, an aid to our faulty and failing memories that everything depends on Jesus his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, his promise to return to us. Do this 
in remembrance of me, he said. But the Lord's Supper is not only a remembrance, it's a proclamation. In this meal, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, Paul had written back in chapter 2. In what we have as his second letter to the Corinthians, he will insist what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your, as your servants, for his sake. The supper is not a repetition of what Jesus has done. That is a terrible blasphemy. But it is intimately bound up with what he has done and proclaims what he has done to each other and to the world. And that ups the stakes, doesn't it? If the supper remembers him, his body for us, the new covenant in his blood, and if the supper proclaims his death until he comes, then such behaviour as was going on in Corinth must have serious consequences. Here is why Paul was so scathing in verse 17. You do not come together for better but for worse. Why? Because those who eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord unworthily will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Not unworthy people eating and drinking, because that's all of us all the time, but eating unworthily in an unworthy manner. That is a terrifying thought, isn't it? to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Paul puts it another way in verse 29. For, again, the one eating and drinking without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on themselves. If you do not call to mind that this group with whom you are sharing this meal is in fact the body of Christ, that what Jesus did, he did for them, not just for you. So you mustn't despise the church of God by humiliating those who have less or nothing. If you don't call that to mind, then you place yourself in considerable danger, Paul says. Paul, with apostolic authority, even says to the Corinthians, this is why some of you are weak and ill and some have fallen asleep. Now, you and I are unable most of the time, to draw a straight line between sickness and particular sins. We can't always disentangle particular choices a person has made from the general brokenness of our fallen world. But on this occasion, Paul does not hesitate. Take what you're doing that seriously, he was insisting. Dear friends, I want to say to you this morning that uh, the Lord's Supper is a beautiful thing a great gift of our saviour to battered human beings with a tendency to forget. We often need help to remember, at least I do. We often need to be recalibrated to the cross, at least I do. And in this symbolic meal, that is precisely what is meant to happen. Do this in remembrance of me, my body for you the new covenant in my blood. But we are so adept at distorting beautiful things and turning them into yet another opportunity for sin. So stop, Paul says. Examine yourself. Consider what you're doing. 
and consider with whom you're doing it. The issue Paul is dealing with in these verses goes far beyond the presenting case of the Lord's Supper. But what they were doing at the Supper, what they had turned it into, most powerfully highlights that issue. And as at every other point in this letter, we must be careful not to treat this as just a history lesson, not just something they did back then that we could not possibly do right now, not us. For we can be just as self-focused that we take no notice of how we're impacting those around us, those for whom, like us, Christ gave his body and shed his blood. So remember what Jesus said and did. Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and wait for each other. Not a bad summary of what we do when we come together, when you think about it. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for all that the Lord's Supper points us to, for that death for us, for that new covenant fulfilled and sealed with Jesus' blood and for the fellowship into which we are brought with one another because we share this common salvation. Would you help us who have heard this word to heed it? For we ask this of you in Jesus' name. Amen.